Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is Episode 5 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 6th of March. And Leon, what's on the program? Well, we're going to have a chat with Will Duckworth. He's the uh, Partner Consulting Services Leader at IBM. He's going to be talking to us all about the IBM-Apple partnership, and he's going to be talking to us all about issues like the challenges of mobility for business. Very interesting re- uh, relationship between those two companies. Apple's, until now, has been, perhaps not primarily, but uh, the majority of its market's been in the consumer and prosumer space, and now it's moving into the enterprise. And it's got a nice big war chest of, uh, what, $150 billion? Something like that. And then we're going to have a chat with Saul Eslake and his expectations for the 2015 budget. I think that's going to be quite a, quite a document and it's not going to please too many people. So in the meantime, let's have a chat with Will Duckworth. We had a pretty crappy Skype line uh, when we were talking to Will and uh, there's a bit of hash on there, so please forgive us, but it's a very interesting interview. Will Duckworth, IBM and Apple have uh, forged a very interesting alliance to bring mobility a bit more securely and efficiently to the enterprise. Could you give us an idea of what you're aiming at and where you think it's going? Yeah, absolutely, Gary. So I think if you look over the last, well, it's been just over seven years now since the uh, the iPhone was launched, and you see what that has meant in the consumer space, you know, to how we live our, our lives every day. Um, it's simplified, it's helped us communicate. It's really transformed the way we live given us that simple convenience, access to information when we need it, where we need it. What what we're seeing is that 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 experience for the consumer stops when they go to work. You know, largely they don't have that simple convenience that allows them to do their work every day um, in a convenient, simple and straightforward manner. So this alliance between Apple and IBM is focused on bringing that consumer mobile experience to the enterprise. So looking at what employees actually do in their work every day and saying how can mobile address a need and simplify and empower that employee. So uh, one of the things that would include, I feel sure, is security because there's a lot of mobile devices in the in the business area, but it's, um, you know, it's what Dad listened to his iTunes uh, on and there's not much form to it, is there? Well, absolutely. Security is obviously paramount, right? Um, and we, we see a lot of clients de- dealing with that problem just to roll out um, a, a bring-your-own-device strategy within a business. You know, everybody brings their phone to work, their, their tablets. Um, most businesses struggle with just ma- managing all that, the, the variety of devices out there and securing them. And we believe by simplifying the technology side, by uh, securing them well, securing them once on the iOS platform, we can then focus on the actual business value and not just get mired in, in technology issues. Yeah, so what are we talking about? What do some of these early apps um, do? Yeah, so, so the apps themselves, we've just launched the first 10 of, of more than 100 that we've got on the slate. And uh, as I say, they're all focused on empowering employees, looking at particular job roles, what those employees do every day, and not only making them more productive, but actually providing them with the insights, the analytics, if you like, to help them make better decisions. So I'll, I'll give you an example um, from the airline industry. We've launched an application um, for airlines, for pilots, in fact, called Plan Flight. I, I don't know if you realize, but uh, pilots themselves decide how much fuel to put in a plane. 
they obviously need to carry some discretionary fuel for any hold-ups or the need to divert to a different airport and for different weather conditions. Um, so pilots spend quite a considerable amount of time deciding how much fuel to put in before a trip. Now, that costs the airline industry billions of dollars a year um, because you, you tend to carry a bit more fuel, right, and play it, play it extra safe. So um, that means they carry extra fuel. It costs fuel to carry fuel, and therefore the airline industry loses billions of dollars literally a year. So the application we're launching, very simply, plan flight and provides information on every trip between those two, two locations, the fuel that was used in those locations, and provides deep analytics to look at the, you know, the upcoming weather pattern for the trip, compare that with weather from previous journeys, the taxi time, the air traffic control management time, and then it advises the pilot on how much discretionary fuel they should carry. Obviously, we can compare um, experiences from thousands and thousands of flights, different airlines, different pilots, and provide that insight to the pilot. Yes, it'll save some time for the pilot in preparation. Fundamentally, it'll save the airline industry billions of dollars a year. And, and they're the kind of applications we're focused on. Empower the employee not only to be more productive, but to make much better decisions. So that means there's a fair amount of what you might call backroom stuff that's supporting that app, isn't it? I mean, is this a cloud application? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're launching these applications on IBM's uh, Bluemix platform, all, all developed in the cloud. And, and the benefit of that is obviously um, speed and ease of implementation. You put your, your finger on a, on a good point there that there's been so much focus on the apps themselves on mobile devices. Those apps are only as good as the information they're connected to. So integration into back-end systems and integration into analytics engines is really um, absolutely paramount to having a successful mobile app. It might look good, um, but if you're not integrated into the systems of record, um, it's really a waste of time in our view. Storing the information in the cloud gives you the opportunity to update almost instantly if things change. Absolutely. No, no I don't doubt we can, even, we can obviously share that data where appropriate in this example between airlines. So airlines all benefit from the information that they each gather on trips. Now, obviously, whilst we, we provide these services in the cloud, where, where clients require data to be stored within their own enterprise, that's also part of our solution. So, yeah, so the airline would have its own particular sort of policies and, and protocols built into, could build them into the app itself. Uh, absolutely. What about banking and, and commerce generally? You know, the, the, the travelling salesman on the road, the, the banker, and, and worrying about a, uh, a deal. Yeah, so I think it's, the banking space is a really interesting market. If you look what's happened over the last uh, 15 years or so, with the whole boom in, in, in e-business and dot-com, it meant that we could all transact online. To an extent, um, that has meant that our relationships and loyalty with the bank has been eroded, right, as we all just transact electronically. What, what we're intent on doing is empowering bankers in the field. They might be, for example, small business bankers, they might be wealth advisors, so that rather than just having a, a transactional relationship, they can actually provide deep insight and advice to their customers around the decisions that they need to make to manage their life. So if, for example, you run a, um, let's say, a small florist, right? Your small business banker 
when they turn up, rather than just you know wading through paperwork and showing you a load of brochures on the products you should buy, they can actually give you deep insight into your cash flow and how that compares to other florists in the neighbourhood, how those florists manage their cash flow and what products they use. So that that kind of analytical uh, comparative analysis, we believe, is is very powerful for the the florist in this example. Um, but it, it helps the bank build a deeper relationship, you know, an advisor, advisory relationship with their customers again, something that has been largely lost in, in, in the age of you know, the, the dot-com boom. Similarly, um, when we look at uh, wealth advisory, so I, I don't know about your experience, Gary, but quite often I, I meet wealth advisors and feel, well, you know, they, they kind of knew what product they were going to pitch to me before they entered the room. What we want to do here is we've launched an application um, that, that allows these wealth advisors to get deep insight into their customer um, on who they are, on how, how their income, their patterns, their behaviour, such as their assets and liabilities. And again, we can model different scenarios, compare them to people like them and how they manage their investments and model scenarios about what fundamentally, not just what your wealth plan looks like, but what your life looks like going forward. What, what are your plans for the future? Um, for family, for investments, for holidays, for cars, and model them in uh, in the tool and build uh, wealth plans to meet that life plan. In, in, an, in an age in Australia where the banking industry is obviously dealing with um, increasing needs for compliance against legislation, th- this will allow them to provide well-structured advice based on deep insight and detailed information from the systems of record. So we know it's on a solid foundation and that the advisor has the right tools to have a really trusted conversation with the customer. So now what about the other big area is retail? And I know Apple is very interested in the iBeacon for connection with a customer, but your apps in retail would be more back-ends? Oh, look, you'd be surprised. So um, if you have, have a look at what's happened in retail, again, um, a lot of people are, are buying online, um, and retailers are desperately keen to promote a much better experience in store so that people who come into the store are better assisted, better supported by staff on the floor, and that staff on the floor are empowered to help customers in a more meaningful way. So one of the applications, for example, we've launched is called Sales Assist, and that's for the retail associates on on a shop floor uh, to connect with customer profiles, um, make suggestions based on previous purchases, help them with selections that might fit their profile that are trending at the moment. And they can also check inventory and and locate the items in store just to help the customer through that process. So it's about empowering those employees on the shop floor to really serve their customer in a a deeper way. We we, we talked at the start about mobility really being a consumer trend. And consumers in this space are really more empowered than employees at the moment. You know, I, I can get on my my iPhone today, have a look at what's in stock in what store and what the pricing is and get all sorts of review information um, that just isn't available to the actual employees on the floor. Well, we, we've got to reverse that, that trend. The, em- the employees need the information at their fingertips to provide a really brilliant experience for customers coming into the store. Price is important, but experience is absolutely paramount. And somebody who is served well um, who has appropriate suggestions put to them will will absolutely go back to the store and will uh, make additional purchases. 
Finally, um, you were talking earlier on as we began this conversation that there are in fact hundreds of apps in development by IBM and Apple. Do you see any end to this? I mean, it's going to be enormous, isn't it? Well, I, I believe it will be, Gary. I think this is a fundamental shift in how businesses approach mobility and approach technology. Um, if, if you look at the history of IT going back decades, most of it has been focused on the back office and on cost containment. This shift is all about empowering the front office, those employees in the field to be much more productive and make much better decisions to better serve their customers. So this isn't about just a cool app and a cool device. This is about really changing the way that most employees work in the field. So I, I do believe it's a fundamental shift. We, we're coming across new applications every day as I talk to, to clients in Australia and New Zealand and throughout Asia Pacific new opportunities and new ideas for just simplifying the work that employees do and really empowering employees, putting the information in the field where they need it, when they need it. Just taking that desktop experience and trying to push it out through a tablet is not, not mobility, that's just portability. We really need to give them the right data at the right time to make the right decision with applications that really meet the business process that they're trying to execute. Well, Duckworth, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's a fascinating time, isn't it? It, it is. Thank, thanks, Gary. Interesting thing, you know, it's going out on the IBM uh, network, uh, a lot of app development within and uh, within IBM and uh, also uh, Apple and uh, outside developers. That uh, pilot um, fuel uh, app that uh, Will talked about is very interesting. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So now, um, Saul so Eslake. Saul so Eslake, what do you see ahead for the budget in 2015? Well, it's going to be a difficult budget to frame because on the one hand, the economy is, if anything, a little weaker than it had been at the time of the 2014 budget, which means that it's not a good time to be raising taxes or cutting government spending in order to make the deficit smaller. Uh, on the other hand, the longer-term challenges, which are about to be spelt out in more detail in the intergenerational report, have anything increased since last year's budget was brought down. Revenue has been written down significantly. The government hasn't been able to get a number of its measures through the Senate that were intended to reduce the budget deficit over the longer term. And of course, finally, the government clearly has far less political capital to expend in the pursuit of politically unpopular measures than it did immediately after it came to government and in its first budget in May last year. What can we expect? I think we'll expect a mix of good economics and what the government hopes will be astute politics. Good economics would mean avoiding measures that further detract from economic growth in the near term, but which seek to reduce the budget deficit and, in the Prime Minister's phrase, put the budget on a sustainable path back to surplus over the medium to longer term. I would argue that all of this needs to be accompanied by a much more credible narrative as to the true nature of the fiscal challenges that the Australian government faces and the economic context in which we have to deal with them. And presumably, the government will also have learnt something from the reaction to last year's budget about the need to do whatever it does in ways that a majority of the electorate will accept as fair in terms of the sharing of the burdens uh, of 
that have to be shouldered by someone if the budget is to be put on a more sustainable footing over the longer term. So they'll be selling it differently this time? Well, I hope they will. Uh, whether they will, we'll see on budget night and immediately afterwards. But if the government has learnt anything from its inability to sell its core budget message to the broader electorate and to get its specific measures through the Senate where it doesn't hold the balance of power, then the selling of the budget and the measures which are for sale will be different from those contained in last year's budget. They have to be, otherwise we'll be in the same position after this year's budget as we have been after last year's. For the average person, in which way are they going to go, do you think? Whatever happens is going to be hard, isn't it? Well, I think it will be, and it will be hard to reconcile the economic objectives, which I hope the government still has, with the political objectives that will loom larger as we move into the second half of the government's parliamentary term in the rundown to the election that's due in September 2016 or thereabouts. Uh, I think the government will, if it wants to put the budget on a credible path back to surplus over the medium to longer term, have to look at a different mix of revenue and spending measures from those which made up last year's budget. Last year's budget, you'll recall, had for the most part sought to reduce the deficit by cutting government spending. The only revenue measures were the reintroduction of petroleum products excise, which was a good policy in my view, and strange that the Greens in particular wouldn't support it, and a temporary 2% increase in the top marginal rate of income tax paid by people earning more than $180,000 a year. That was specifically intended to address the fairness question, but because that increase in the top marginal rate was by definition only temporary and because there are still so many avenues available to those notionally expected to pay it to avoid paying it whilst nearly all of the measures on the expenditure side which overwhelmingly impacted low and middle income earners more than high income earners were by definition permanent, the government found it almost impossible to address the charge that the budget as a whole was unfair in its impact. John Howard, the former Prime Minister, had said on a number of occasions, including after last year's budget, that the Australian public will cop unpleasant fiscal measures, measures which hurt, if they're persuaded that they're necessary and if they can see and accept that in totality, the measures in the budget are fair. That is, that they impact people in accordance with some rough estimate of their capacity to pay. And unfortunately, for the government's point of view, the judgment of the Australian electorate overwhelmingly appears to have been that neither of those two tests posed by John Howard were satisfied by the 2014 budget. So the 2015 budget's going to have to address those questions and do so in a way that hopefully does go some way to addressing the economic and fiscal challenges that Australia faces over the longer term. And in doing all of those things uh, is wrapped in a narrative that makes sense and is easily communicated to the Australian people. What sort of revenue measures do you expect or do you hope the government will introduce in this budget? Well, there's a distinction to be drawn there between what I think the government might be prepared to contemplate and what ideally a government should do. And I say that having regard to the fact that the government did make before the 2013 election a number of promises not to do things that it will eventually have to do or some future government will have to do if the budget is to be put on a sustainable footing. Most of the things that I think the government or a future government needs to do on the revenue side entail 
broadening the income tax base, that is, eliminating or curtailing many of the avenues that are used overwhelmingly by high-income households to reduce the tax they pay or to defer the tax they pay to later periods or both. What I'm thinking about here includes the generosity of the tax treatment of contributions to superannuation funds and the earnings of those superannuation funds and the income that's paid out of those superannuation funds once people past the age of 60. It includes the discount on capital gains, presently taxed at half the rate applicable to ordinary wage and salary income. The Henry Review recommended that that discount be reduced to 40%. It includes the use of trusts to divert income earned by people who are essentially self-employed to other members of their households who face lower marginal tax rates, thus reducing the overall amount of tax that someone in that position actually pays. It includes the still concessional tax treatment of fringe benefit, particularly the provision of company cars, something which the previous Labor government had sought to do something in its last budget, but which the present government walked away from in its first few months in office, despite all the talk about it confronting a budget emergency and a debt crisis. These are measures which would undoubtedly be politically challenging for the government, but if they were to adopt measures like this, first of all, it would have a powerful impact on reducing the budget over the longer term, deficit over the longer term, and it would also allow the government to sell some of its measures designed to reduce government spending in ways that the public at large would be more likely to accept that the burden was being fairly shared. Now, whether the government actually has the political appetite for anything like that, of course, remains to be seen, both in, in the budget that will be brought down in May or in the lead-up to, uh, to the next election in September 20. 2016, if it believes that it needs to get a specific endorsement from the people in order to pursue measures like that that weren't on the agenda that it presented to the people at the last election. But the issue is, but the fundamental issue remains, something has to be done about the revenue side of things at the moment because revenue has uh, crashed. Y- yes, it does. Um, certainly, there are things that need to be done on the expenditure side as well, and uh, new Treasury Secretary John Fraser pointed some of those out in a speech at the end of February. He made the point that government spending has been growing at in excess of 3.5% per annum in real terms for more than a decade now and that the political responsibility for that rests with both sides of parliament during their uh, during their periods in government. But I'd also make the point that compared with the averages that applied over the Howard government's entire term of office, uh, revenue is about two and a quarter percentage points below the average during, as a proportion of GDP, the average during John Howard's term of office. Spending is about one percentage point of GDP higher than on average during John Howard's and Peter Costello's tenure of the Treasury benches. So uh, that clearly suggests that uh, measures need to be taken on both sides of the budget if the budget is to be put on a sustainable footing. Thus far, as I said, the government has focused primarily on the expenditure side. Yes, there are certainly things that can and should be done there, but you won't be able to fix the budget in a way that the public will accept as fair if some measures aren't contemplated on the revenue side as well. And that's a very hard lesson. So, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. The budget is going to be a bit of a fright, I think. I think so. I think, and well, they, they don't have easy decisions ahead of them. And uh, Saul actually pointed out what they should be doing, but he doubts that they will. It's a toss-up between politics and actual need, isn't it? And the politics might just win. Okay, now the news, Leon. 
First of all, Gary, China's manufacturing activity contracted for the second straight month in February. That came a day after China's central bank announced an interest rate cut to help stem a slump in the world's second biggest economy. The official purchasing managers index released by the National Bureau of Statistics came in at 49.9. That's up a fraction from the 49.8 in January. But it means China remains in contraction. This index is a key indicator of the health of China's economy and it's a massive driver of global growth. January's figure was the first contraction for 20 seven months and it highlights weakness in the key sector as China's economic growth slows. So that's not good, Gary. It's very ungood for us. It absolutely is. Ungood for the global economy, I'd say. Now, but however, there are good signs coming out of the US with US consumer spending and incomes rising in January. Commerce Department data showed consumer spending, which drives about 70% of the US economy, rose about 0.3% in January. That rebounds from a slight 0.1% dip in December. Wages and salary, which is the lion's share of income, jumped 0.6%. Now, uh, to Europe and Greece's Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras says the country won't seek a third bailout deal, having succeeded in separating the loan agreement from the disastrous austerity conditions imposed with the willing cooperation of previous governments. And But he warned that um, they were in for a difficult battle in a long and difficult war with the loan extension. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel and European Commissioner President Jean-Claude Juncker actually sidestepped questions when they were asked by journalists about a possible third bailout for Greece saying that the focus was on completing a second bailout for the country. They didn't talk about the third bailout. They avoided the question altogether. <laughs> yeah, as well they might. I mean, they've still got the second one to go. Now, um, the uh, profit season, as you know, Gary, has ended and the results are not good. It's a sign the economy is struggling. And it tells us we can expect more interest rate cuts. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, profits fell almost 6% in 2014. Gross operating profits fell 0.2% in three months to December, and profits in seasonally adjusted terms were down 5.9%, 6% in 2014. Not good. It's not good at all. I mean, we're almost flatlining. What's, what's uh, the growth is about and, one, and not, one not a good sign for the economy, and that was also confirmed by the ABS figures yesterday, showing a GDP grow a seasonally adjusted below trend 0.5% in the three months at the end of December. That's only slightly up on the 0.3%, of growth in the September quarter. Now, seasonally adjusted, GDP grew by 2.5%, but it means over the last six months, GDP has just grown at 1.8%. Yeah, I mean, when you consider what it was like five, six years ago. Well, yeah, well, the full year figure remains well below the long-term growth trend rate of about 3.25%, and it actually reflects falling mining investment and weak public spending. At the same time, interestingly enough, inflation was flat in February. Price rises in fuel and utilities weren't enough to overcome falls in fruit and vegetables and holiday and travel and accommodation. The unchanged result from February TD Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge follows a meagre 0.1% 0.1 rise in January. The annual rate of inflation was 1.3%. Now, that's well below the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target band. And that's the lowest reading since 2009. Yeah, inflation's almost a non-thing, but should it begin to turn upwards again, I think a lot of people could lose a lot, you know, bondholders could lose a lot of money. Now, Australia's current account deficit narrowed more than expected in the December quarter, according to the ABS. Official data showed our current account deficit for the quarter narrowed a seasonally adjusted 21% to $9.5588 billion. Also, the number of homes approved has surged to a new record 
But what's driving that is not houses, but apartments, Gary. That's right. There's um, one in uh, Melbourne uh, just on, on, you know, sell off the plan. At the moment, there's 450 apartments in uh, Chapel Street. Well, the number of buildings approved listed as seasonal just as 7.9% to 19,282 in January. And while economists were expecting the Reserve Bank to cut interest rate, the RBA proved them wrong yet again. It kept rates on hold at 2.25%. With house prices now soaring to record highs, the RBA decided to keep its powder dry, but everyone is expecting another price uh, rate cut in April or May. That's after the government uh, puts in some uh, laws on uh, how much you can borrow. Well, the RBA last month surprised everyone by cutting interest rates at 0.25%, citing weaker economic growth and deteriorating jobs outlook. But since then, unemployment has climbed and business confidence have taken even more of a hammering. Yeah, somebody's saying the, the other day that uh, we're looking down the throat of 7% unemployment. According to the Business Council of Australia and their budget submission, Australia has a decade to sort out its federal budget problems or lifestyle will suffer. It says Australia has a choice between taking early gradual action now or doing nothing. And if they do nothing, they'll face blunt, costly spending cuts and tax increases down the track when Australia's in crisis. And it says the big problem in Australia is that spending is higher than taxes. So it says the government has to avoid new spending commitments that can't be offset by savings. It has to perform a comprehensive review of health care and the aged pension retirement system. It has to redesign major areas of spending, particularly welfare and payments, and complete major initiatives in the last budget, like the tertiary education reforms that are still stuck in the Senate. And you've got uh, protesters on the street about uh, projected cuts in penalty rates and at work at the weekends. You know, it comes down to the government's going to have to do a hell of a lot better job on selling what is necessary. Meanwhile, the government has scrapped the $5 Medicare co-payment. Treasurer Joe Hockey is telling reporters after the meeting that uh, the cost of the decision over four years comes to a little less than $1 billion. Now, there's been a big clean-out at Meyer. Bernie Brooks has stepped down as chief executive of the department store following a year when its profit fell down by 23%. Sales were flat and its share price took a hammering. He's going to be replaced by Richard Umbers, who currently serves as chief information supply chain officer. And he's going to become chief executive and managing director now, what's interesting about Umbers, Gary, is that as a former UK retail executive, he held key positions in Aldi, Woolworths, Australia Post. He only arrived in Australia eight years ago. The company's chief merchandise and marketing officer, David Bracken, who was a former executive at the Burberry Fashion Group in Britain, who arrived only arrived three years ago, is going to become deputy chief executive officer. And as part of the clean-out, Chief Financial Officer Mark Ashby, who will leave, will leave the retailer to pursue an opportunity overseas. Yeah, meaning he's out there looking. Now, Assistant Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says there's no need for Royal Commission into financial advisers despite the scandal that's rocked National Australia Bank. Now, there's been renewed calls for a Royal Commission after the bank's financial services arm, uh, MAB Wealth, confessed that it quietly paid out as much as $15 million to 750 customers during the last five years. It sacked 37 advisers, and the Australian Securities and Investments Commission is investigating the bank. And it follows a whole lot of other scandals, including Australia's biggest bank, the Commonwealth Bank. And a Senate inquiry last year urged a Royal Commission into the sector. This was dismissed by the government, and Josh Frydenberg is standing by that decision. The cynic in me says the financial advisors, or some of them, they're going to do it again anyway. Interestingly enough, uh, credit card holders have been stung by $30 late fees, are joining a class action over what lawyers call unlawful penalties. 
Lawyers are going to argue GE Capital Finance and HSBC's late fees are an unlawful penalty because they don't reflect the actual loss to the finance companies. And Stephen Lewis from ACA Lawyers said the action was about justice for anyone who had to pay a late fee. He said GE Capital charges twenty to thirty dollars in late fees. HSBC charges thirty bucks. And these two companies provide credit card facilities for companies like Coles, Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, the good guys Bingley and Meyer. They, I guess they are. I mean, ANZ went down, didn't they? They on yeah. their their fee. And uh, yeah, so it's a matter of time now. Regular letters are going to take an extra two days to arrive under a two-speed mail service. It's going to be adopted by Australia Post. This comes after Australia Post uh, reported a big loss last week. It's first in 30 years. So this change will see a price-to-priority service beginning in September, and it's also asking the competition watchdog if it can raise the basic stamp price from 70 cents to one dollar. That's not going to go down very well in the country, Gary. No, the country won't like that at all. But point out that in the UK, there is a two-tier system. Uh, people got used to it. You you want to get uh, same-day deli- or next-day delivery, you pay uh, the premium postage. The other big piece of news is that News Corp plans to launch a rival 24-7 news channel news service on pay TV platform Foxtel if it fails to clinch a deal to buy the operator of Sky News. Now, the local management team has drawn up contingency plans to go it alone in the event that a $25 million takeover offer for Australian News Channel is blocked by any of the one-third shareholders like Australia's 7 and 9 networks and British satellite broadcaster Sky. And News Corp executives are prepared to start a new channel. And under the backup plan, the new channel will be based at the live broadcast studios of Fox Sports in North Sydney built in a purpose-built $30 million facility housing state-of-the-art technology, and preliminary plans could see a channel begin broadcasting in 2016 in direct competition with Sky News. And that's a year before ANC's 21-year carriage agreement with Foxtel expires at the end of 2017. Well, as expected, the whole video-on-demand, video-availability thing is getting very, very complicated. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. We'll be back next week. That's right. Next week, we're talking to Team Heasley from uh, Venture Crowd, all about funding businesses. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.